If you own a, a beautiful building that's uh, newly renovated with all new systems in an improving area, why would you sell that? You're much better off levering it up, uh, using that the proceeds of the loan to return some capital to your investors, and then just owning the thing and allowing the rents to rise over time and therefore the value to compound tax-free. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a weekly podcast brought to you by RentSync, where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we uncover the technologies and strategies used to help overcome operational challenges and increase the value of your multifamily investments. So let's get into our conversation today. Okay, welcome back to Sink or Swim. I'm Mitch Fanning with RentSync, and joining me today is Moses Kagan, the co-founder of Adaptive Realty, a Los Angeles-based real estate private equity firm that focuses on boutique apartment buildings in, you guessed it, LA. Moses, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. This is interesting. I'm I'm glad to have you on because, you know, initially I came across you from Twitter, and we'll get into that uh, probably halfway through this conversation. But let's start by just kind of kicking it off by talking about, you know, what is Adaptive and why you formed it. Sure. Uh, so. Adaptive is a uh, real estate private equity firm based here in Los Angeles. We are, uh, to give you a sense of the size, we're kind of approximately $175 million in assets under management, so, so quite small. We are laser-focused on what we, what we describe as sub-institutional scale uh, multifamily. So that means projects anywhere between like 3 and $10 million total capitalization. We have renovated 100 buildings like that over the last 12 years. And currently manage approximately 105 buildings with about 750 apartments. So, you know, and this is probably something I, I was thinking about mentioning earlier, but, you know, and we'll drill into that, what you just kind of mentioned. The thing I, that kind of was interesting about you and, and, uh, and what you're doing is throughout the whole life cycle, whether it's, you know, raising money to even selling, which I know you don't do a lot of, you do things kind of differently or kind of uh, something that's not non-conventional, we'll say. So let's kind of start and, and drill into what, you know, some of the comments you just made by starting off with, you know, being a permanent holder. So yeah, I noticed you talk a lot about that. Number one, like why and, uh, you know, how do you kind of convince your investors to kind of come along for the ride? Yeah, so maybe let's start out by talking about what the sort of standard real estate private equity uh, model is, which is, yeah. you know, buy a building with a bunch of debt, fix it up, and then uh, and flip it as quickly as you po- as you possibly can, trying to maximize the uh, the IRR. And that's a great model for a lot of people, and it's particularly good for um, you know institutional real estate firms that uh, raise money from non-tax paying investors like pension funds and endowments. We work with taxpayers, and that means typically high net worth individuals and family offices, and those types of investors are highly sensitive to tax. So that's the first thing to say. But the most important thing, I think, to say is that that uh, Los Angeles is kind of a special market in the sense that it's um, severely supply constrained. So there's like a permanent imbalance between uh, demand to live in Los Angeles and the, and the number of new apartments that are supplied every year. And for that reason, what we learned after, after unfortunately selling, selling some renovated buildings is that it, it really does not make sense. If you, if you own a, a beautiful building that's uh, newly renovated with all new systems in an improving area, why would you sell that? 
you're much better off levering it up sort of sensibly, uh, using that the proceeds of the loan to, to return some capital to your investors, and then just owning the thing and allowing the rents to rise over time and therefore the value to compound tax-free. No, it totally makes sense. Uh, just to talk about the supply constraint for a second, did LA, was it, did it change in terms of an increase of supply based on just COVID? Like, did you notice that uh, at all or was it more, was it typical? The experience we had during COVID was more on the demand side. So, you know, supply for apartments is going to be based primarily, you know, is based on development. Yeah. And so the the units being delivered during any given year are ones that were planned and permitted and, and begun years before that. So it's not that we've had more supply during COVID. What we've had is uh, less demand. And that's sort of taken two, two forms. One, at the bottom end of the market. So uh, by bottom, I mean uh, in the age distribution of the, the renter demographic. So the kind of like 22, 23-year-olds. Those people did not come to LA in the same numbers as they have previously. So the ordinary cycle is people graduate college and some percentage of them who are particularly ambitious and want to be in entertainment or tech or or just love the idea of living in LA uh, come out here. And those people, uh, for obvious reasons, chose not to over the past year or, or so. So that leached prospective tenants out of the, the younger age range. At the upper end of the, the renter demographic, so people like, let's say, mid-30s to early 40s, a lot of those people end up leaving LA anyway in, in a normal year because the single-family homes are so unaffordable here. So I think what happened is that people left earlier than they might have. It's like if you're deciding like, hey, do we stay here for another couple of years or whatever and then continue enjoying the nightlife and the bars and the, you know, all that stuff. Right. Uh, or do we go move to Austin or wherever else to be able to afford a home? <laughs> I was, I was going to mention it. Yeah, exactly. And and so I think w- with with the city, you know, basically closed down over the, over the past year, uh, I think a lot of people said, you know what? We're going to move now instead of waiting for another year or two like we thought we were going to. So we've kind of lost uh, demand at the the youngest and oldest end of the of the kind of like renter uh, prime renting ages, and uh, we're starting to see that come back, particularly among the the youngest tenants. And we're hopeful that that will uh, that that will continue as uh, as time goes on. So I kind of want to go back to my first question in terms of why you formed it, but also to frame that around maybe the 2008, 2009 period, because I think you have an interesting story around, at least I thought it was very interesting in terms of how you got, you know, you financed your first building and you, or you purchased your first building and, and so on and some of the uh, lessons learned. So maybe we'll start with that. Like, you know, take us back to that first building and uh, your experiences there. Yeah, I guess I should start by saying that that you know our decision to go into buying and renovating apartment buildings was not the result of some like well considered strategic options strategy meeting. Well, my parents had always owned some small apartment buildings in upstate New York. In like 2007 or so, my brother and I were looking to just like buy a two unit building. He would live on one side, I would live on the other, and because the market was still like crazily inflated. The numbers for those type buildings were just totally insane. Like it was obvious even to our like fairly naive uh, eyes that uh, that the numbers didn't make sense. And my brother found a guy who had bought and renovated a derelict 16-unit building and run out of money before he could finish it. 
And so with help from our parents, we purchased that building at a price which was very good relative to the existing market conditions. You know, we could have bought it cheaper six months later if we had just waited. But anyway, so that was, we bought that building and that was our introdu- introduction to, to owning apartment buildings in Los Angeles. Still own that building today. It's kind of around the corner from here and uh, it's worth a multiple of, uh, 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 of what we paid for it. Motivated uh, sellers are always the best to, to deal with, I've, I've heard. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, this guy was, <laughs> he was underwater on the building because he was into penalty interest and in his construction loans. So, in order to make the numbers balance and be able to actually buy the building, we had to lend him $15,000 as a fourth trust deed on his home. And I've told this story a lot, and I always used to joke, well, you know, and we'll never see that $15,000 again. Unbelievably, the guy managed (laughs) not to lose the home during the Great Recession. And about three or four months ago, I got uh, an email from an escrow company being like, please send us the payoff demand for your for the fifteen thousand dollar fourth trustee on this guy's house. And he had been, I mean, he hadn't been making payments to us since, and he was in penalty interest to us. <laughs> so we ended up, he, but he paid it off. I mean, it was actually, it ended up being a great investment for us <laughs> over uh, whatever it's been like, you know, 12 years or something. So this next line of questioning is, is really geared towards when kind of others are kind of running out of the exits, you know, so, you know, that old saying kind of, that's the opportunity yep. and, you know, just listening on in, into another podcast that you were on, you made, obviously a, you ramped up your investing over that period from like 2009 to, I think it was 2012, but you made, you kind of started to, to ramp it up. And I think there was a quote that you made, you know, you, you kind of jumped in when others were running away. And so just totally off script, you know, when you look at say, you know, th- this kind of 2020, you know, another another kind of, you know, uh, block swan event, if you will. Now, obviously it's a different situation. Real estate isn't kind of, you know, cratering, but how are you guys looking at that in terms of like, do you see opportunities in the market or are you just kind of weathering the storm? Well, you know, we raised a, uh, our, our sixth fund in, and we closed it in October of last year. And our, our thinking was when we bought it, that there were going to be opportunities that, uh, so, so I should say that, uh, California and I guess the whole country has a, as an eviction moratorium, which means basically that there are a lot of owners who have tenants who are not paying rent. And so we assumed that there would be, or we suspected that there would be owners who would grow tired of owning buildings full of tenants, not paying rent and would be willing to sell those buildings for reasonable prices. And so we were very optimistic when we raised that fund that there would be all kinds of stuff to buy. In real life, that did not happen. And uh, we can talk about why that is. I mean, tenants probably paid at a higher rate than maybe some people were expecting. Owners probably had maybe more financial cushion, a little less leverage than, than maybe we thought. And also banks were willing to forbear on mortgages to a large extent. So that wave of opportunity never really appeared. And uh, extraordinarily unusually for us, we have not bought a single building with that fund. And again, we've had it active and ready to go since October. Now, we have luckily been able to buy some other buildings using different vehicles that have different uh, return expectations. 
So, you know, we've been fairly active, but not with that fund, uh, again, because the, uh, the opportunities have been so uh, scarce. Oh, it totally makes sense. Now, when we're, you know, that's kind of, that's a good segue into the, you know, the buying part of the conversation. You know, you, you guys are known to look for, you know, neighborhoods in transition, quote unquote. So let's, let's start with the reason, you know, why that is and, and how do you even go about selecting uh, like the, the, the property? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that we're very quantitative in the way that we think about evaluating deals. We are focused almost entirely on unlevered yield on cost. And that's a very, very simple equation. It's just in the numerator, so the, the, the top half of the equation, it is uh, forecast annual rents after stabilization minus forecast annual operating expenses. So effectively NOI net operating income at the top. And then just divided by, uh, in the denominator, the cost to buy the building, cost to renovate it, the cost to hold it during the time that we're renovating, and then of course our fees. So it's basically, you know, what is the annual NOI once the building stabilized divided by what is the total cost of the project? And then we're, depending on the vehicle for which we're putting out money, we'll have like a target for what the, the, that need, the quotient needs to be. For a fund, which we haven't been able to deploy, we need the, the unlevered yield on cost to be like north of six right now. For opportunity zone stuff and some other stuff that we're doing, it can be a little lower, but that's how we think about things. So you asked, why are we interested in improving neighborhoods? Well, the answer is that there's only two real numbers that change in that equation. So that the cost of renovating a building, it doesn't matter if we're, we're doing renovations in like the most expensive neighborhood in LA or the cheapest neighborhood in LA, like the renovation costs are the same and the fees are the same. And the cost to run a building doesn't change. Like it doesn't matter if you're running a building in a fancy neighborhood or a poor neighborhood, like you know, you're going to fix everything that breaks. You're going to maintain the building. You're going to clean it. You're going to have a gardener there. So you're going to insure it. So all of that stuff is, is, is basically the same. So the variables that matter are uh, what is the purchase price for the building? And what are the rents that you can forecast uh, upon completion of the project? That's pretty much it. And so our job is to constantly be looking at properties that are on the market and running that equation and trying to find the ones that work. And so why look for improving neighborhoods? Well, in improving neighborhoods, you can sometimes, it used to be frequently, but now it's much less frequently, but you can sometimes find buildings that are priced, that are mispriced relative to the rents that you can get upon stabilization. In other words, like basically that the investors who are trying to buy uh, real estate have not realized uh, how good the neighborhood is, how high the rents can be once you're done renovating. Uh, so, you know, our job is to sort of like stay abreast of those trends, look at where people want to live and, and sort of like be skate to where the puck is going to use a, uh, to use a, maybe, maybe a Canadian metaphor. <laughs> do you think when it comes to like the renters and maybe even in your areas, do you think they're looking for that boutique experience as well? Like almost versus the, the different the different types like the different type of class says yeah we have and that's a, a good point and maybe we should talk about that a little bit our buildings are very unusual the finishes look class a field class a we use hardwood floors we use you know the the design's really cool and modern and uh you know it's a little generic so that it doesn't age but it it feels very clean and um and high end 
What separates our buildings from class A though, is that because they're much smaller, you know, we're talking about buildings with like six units, 12 units, what 20 units. We don't have the kind of amenities that are in like a standard large class A building. We don't have gyms and for the most part, we don't have pools and, you know, that kind of thing. What we do have though, because they're uh, small buildings, we have a couple of advantages that I think are not widely uh, appreciated in real estate. One is, and this really came to the fore during COVID, these small buildings almost never have shared entries and hallways, okay? So almost all of the units in our entire portfolio have their own front door. And there are a couple of good things about that. So from the tenant's perspective, it's nice. Like, you know, they feel like it's a private thing. They're going to their own front door. They don't have any shared interior space. That's actually nice from a security perspective too. They don't have to like be worried about who else is in that hallway or anything like that. It's also very good from a um, efficiency perspective, both for CapEx and OpEx for us, because we don't have to renovate and clean and maintain a bunch of space that does not generate rent. So like you probably heard people talk about the difference between like the square footage of the building and the rentable square footage of the building. Like what, right, it, you yeah. know, what it, right. For us, all the square footage is rentable. Pretty much every single square foot of that building is going to be generating rent for us. So that's one nice thing about our buildings. The other thing, and I think this is really not widely appreciated and probably should be, is that when you build big buildings, the nature of geometry means that you are going to have light usually only on in, on one side of, a, of an apartment. So if you picture... A normal class, big class A apartment building with a hallway running down a floor and you got apartments yeah. on either side of it. Okay. With the exception of the corner units, all of those interior units, the ones along the hallway, are only going to have windows going out in one direction. They obviously don't have windows going back toward the hallway and they don't have windows going into each other's apartments. So it's just light from one side. Okay. And that dictates certain things about how the apartments are designed, but it also, it's just like worse. Like it's just natural light is among the most important things that you can have in your house. And so when you do small buildings, your apartments are going to have just by nature, you can, you, you end up with all corner units effectively, or, or sometimes yeah. a lot of units that have light on four sides. So what that does, it, again, it's not something that people talk about a lot, but one, it improves the, just it, regardless of how the apartment laid out more, more light better. Right. But also, because of the nature of apartment design, you basically need to have uh, windows in each bedroom, right? That's a requirement of the fire code. By having light, smaller buildings means light on more sides, which means more flexibility in terms of how you lay the apartments out. Like you can have, because you, you're, not, you're not hamstrung by only having light on one side. So like if you, if you think of a standard class A apartment, what you'll find is, like a one bedroom, there's only light on one side. So they have to use part of that. One of the windows has to be for a bedroom and the other one has to be for like the living dining room. And that's it. There's no, and you can't do anything else because all of that space that's away from the windows kind of just has to be part of the living dining room. Once you get light on another side, it opens up all kinds of other ways to kind of play Tetris with the the units. And that, that turns out to allow for much more efficient layouts. Anyway, so there's some major advantages to doing these smaller buildings. Yeah, I mean, when I looked uh, on your website, your units, you know, are are beautiful. If I was living in LA and I was renting, I definitely would be. Uh, 
uh, checking checking out uh, your places. Well, that's I should say there's an intentional thing going on there. I mean, obviously, uh, we want to make nice apartments, but you need to go several steps past that. In other words, if you want to generate premium rents, right? It's not just about the apartment. It's about how the apartment is presented. And so there's a kind of like a chain of things that you need to get right from like how the apartment looks in real life to how it's staged, to how it's photographed, to how those photographs are used in ads and and what the copy in those ads look like, to who the leasing person is that the tenants interact with when they reach out, you know, when they see that ad and, and become interested in the apartment. And then obviously the whole experience of signing a lease, right? So how the apartment looks, like the finishes and the layout and everything is important, but it's getting that whole chain of, of, of things correct and having them all hang together in like a coherent way that allows you to generate uh, premium rents. Interested in being a guest on Sink or Swim or have a really great idea for an episode? Email us at podcast at rentsync.com. So again, coming back to the, the kind of similar question, in your experience, how has that changed that whole you know, that whole ex- life cycle experience changed given COVID? Like, what have you guys done differently or or have, have you seen? Yeah, so uh, a couple things to say about that. We have done some digital staging, which we had not done previously. Like, we've, historically, we've done pretty high-end staging and it's pretty expensive and, like, logistically painful to do that. So we, during COVID, we have experimented with digital staging, I'm reasonably happy with the results. I think there's a lot of room for improvement. It's certainly not as good as physical. It's getting better. We have also implemented, because you want to stay away from giving in-person tours to the extent possible during COVID, we have implemented you know, those um, uh, three-dimensional tours. I, I'm blanking yeah, the name. Matterport. Matterport. Yeah, the Matterport tours. And we've also been doing a lot of like uh, having the leasing agents do like iPhone video walkthroughs, both recorded, but also sort of like custom, like they'll get a, a prospective tenant on the, on a FaceTime call basically, and just walk through the unit and show them the, show them the layout. So some companies do have, have sort of like moved to like totally impersonal, I would call it leasing where it's all sort of self-serve and you just go see the apartment yeah. without a leasing agent. I believe that uh, high-end apartments are sold like I believe that there is an element of salesmanship there. And so we have not wanted to fully remove leasing agents from the equation. So what we're doing is trying as much as possible. We're giving as much additional information as we can in the ads, but ultimately still funneling people to uh, to in-person showings. No, it totally makes sense. I want to kind of go back to the conversation we had around unlevered yield so my question was, are you looking at unlevered yield as a result of ha- wanting to have some margin of safety? Uh, also, are you looking at it because you guys are doing like a refinancing model or am I kind of out to lunch here? No, no. The reason is as follows. It is relatively easy to make mediocre deals look tasty by doing <laughs> two things. Okay. One is throwing a lot of leverage on there. Yeah. And two is building out like long-term forecasts that show, uh, you know, rent growth and ultimately an exit at some exciting price, right? Like basically 
you can take almost any deal. And if you put, you know, 75% LTV leverage on there, uh, cheap enough interest rate, and you show uh, rents growing at two and a half or 3% a year and expenses growing at 2% a year or whatever, and exiting at the same cap rate that you bought it, like almost any deal looks good. And so we have some major problems with doing that. Like, so first of all, like separately from what it looks like, I just don't want to do mediocre deals. So I want to make sure that we are adding value. And what I mean by adding value is it's very simple. It's like, if you can buy a four cap, in the market, a 4% unlevered yield, right? I can just walk in and buy a four cap, right? If I'm going to go through all this brain damage, you know, of this massive renovation and all this pain and all that stuff to generate like a four and a half, like what's the point? Don't like, why would I do that? Right. (laughs) So the first thing to say is I want like, I want there to be a significant increase in value. I want it to be clear that I am actually adding value. And I think, and, and by looking at things on an unlevered basis, you kind of like get at the heart of that. Uh, it's easy to tell when you're adding value and when you're not. So that's the first thing to say. The other thing to say is that we do not use, for the purposes of talking to investors about, about potentially capitalizing these deals, like we are not in the business of giving forward projections either about uh, rent growth or expense growth, and, and certainly not about exits. I mean, first of all, we're not going to sell these things. We're effectively permanent holders. So that's right. off the table right away. But it's like, I regard presenting people with forward, like long-term forecasts or real estate as like, like really like intellectually dishonest. Like you can't think of all the people who bought stuff in 2019 on the basis of you know, 3% per year annual rent increases in Los Angeles. And then COVID hit and the rents went down by 10, 20%, depending on the neighborhood, you know? And that's not, I mean, obviously COVID is an aberrant, you know, as a black swan or however you want to think about it, but it's not, so COVID particularly is, it's it's a one-off thing, but like there are always unexpected things. Sometimes rents grow much faster than 3%. Sometimes they come down and I do not, because I cannot with any certainty predict those, the direction or velocity of rent increases, I do not think that investors should use those predictions for uh, evaluating deals. So what we say to people is basically, look, here's what we think the rents are going to be when we're done with this project. And that's based on our existing portfolio. So like, what are we getting right now for rents for similar units in our existing buildings? Okay. Uh, That's how we're going to forecast the rents upon completion. What's going to happen after that? I don't know. Like things have worked out well for people who've owned apartment buildings in Los Angeles over the last like 75 years or whatever the number is. <laughs> so as long as you don't over lever and have to sell when you have one of these black swan events. So what we say is, look, like if, you know, get comfortable or don't with the unlevered yield that we're offering here. We're going to keep the leverage pretty moderate. You know, we're going to refinance after we're done, but we're going to keep the, the leverage pretty moderate. And then like... We are going to just trust that in a supply-constrained market, if you do a good job managing the building, you're going to be happy about uh, about what happens over the long term. But as to what's going to happen in any particular year or right. couple of years, I mean, how the hell should I know? <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. I appreciate that uh, running running me through that. Let's talk about marketing and leasing a little bit. And really, uh, I think the tweet that kind of brought you into my uh, – into my kind of uh, attention. Obviously, you know, we agree, but we are seeing it even, you know, some of the larger ones 
the people inside of those organizations or operations are getting those skill sets, which they didn't have to your point. They didn't have, uh, maybe three to five years ago. Now, all of a sudden, uh, like when you're asking a leasing agent to actually use, you know, a camera and do uh, a, essentially a video tour or, or understand video, it's in a way it's a different skill set that they had to know maybe five years ago. Definitely. And it's, I mean, if you layer that on top of like writing copy for ads and figuring out where those ads should go and tracking where the leads are coming from and all that stuff, I mean, it, it becomes a lot. And, you know, we're fortunate to have, so we've centralized a lot of that. In other words, we write the copy centrally. We dictate for the most part what pictures are used, but we're fortunate to have lease, a leasing team comprised of like very entrepreneurial, smart, personable people. And, uh, you know, they get paid well for what is effectively like a part-time job. And, and that's worked out really well for us. And it's one of the, one of the sources of our competitive advantage. I'm quite confident, but they're not, they're fundamentally salespeople, right? I mean, they're, they're not marketers and there's a distinction. Like obviously marketers are in charge of bringing in leads and salespeople are in charge of closing them. And we try to do our best to help our salespeople bring in the leads, but that's not fundamentally a marketing person. That's a, a salesperson. Now, very large owners have have had marketing serious marketing departments for a long time. Um, I remember it must have been seven years ago or something meeting a guy who works in marketing at Douglas Emmett, which is a, a very a REIT that owns uh, a lot of apartments on the west side of LA and in Hawaii, and they've had a very sophisticated marketing department for a long time. So I, I don't mean to say that that's, that doesn't exist. I think. Basically, the larger the owner, the larger the management company, the more likely they are to have that sort of uh, capacity. Exactly. But it's those, it, it just, at a small to medium-sized property management company, you just don't have the budget or expertise or career path or whatever to, to grow internal departments of that type. So as we, we come to a close, and before we get to the quick fire round, you know, there's one question that basically ties into, I think, really the first question in terms of like your philosophy but I want to touch upon it. In 2012, you know, you decided to uh, liquidate your portfolio at the time. And that, in a way, taught you some lessons in terms of why you wanted to do it this way. Maybe speak to that a little bit before we kind of cap off and get to the, the fun questions. Well, so I should say that it was all of our deal or almost all of our deals up to that point had been funded by a good friend of mine from high school. And in 2012, he decided that he wanted to liquidate the portfolio. So uh, because he was our sole equity provider, he had that right. And uh, so we sold the first, the, we, we owned the first deal we ever did, but the, the subsequent 11 or 12 deals uh, were all ones that he had capitalized. So we ended up selling all of those between 2011 and 2012. And you know, we made some money or whatever, but but certainly it wasn't life changing. And we had several of the buyers of those properties hired us to continue managing them post sale. So we had the the unpleasant experience of sort of watching over over the subsequent years as the rents continued to rise, and mm-hmm. uh, and operating expenses stayed relatively low because uh, these were brand newly renovated apartment buildings. And so that was really one of the causes, I guess, of our, our uh, the way we think the, the sort of like permanent hold mentality that we have, which is, you know, you don't, you just, when you have great assets, don't sell them. Yeah. It's uh, more and more, I think it's, you know, I personally think it's, it's definitely the right, the right strategy, regardless of the asset that uh, you're interested in, in owning. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I, I want to be careful to say that this sort of a strategy, I would not recommend it in markets where it is easy to add supply. So like there are certain markets that are sort of more like trading markets where you like get in and then you get out because you're worried that on the next up cycle, developers are going to swamp the market with new supply. Los Angeles and a few other cities make it so hard for developers and there's so much latent demand for the for those apartments that you kind of that there's like uh, maybe to bring us full circle in the conversation there's like more of a permanent imbalance between supply and demand and it is in those sorts of markets where i think that uh holding permanently makes a lot of sense good point and uh thank you for clarifying that one all right so let's uh kick off the quick fire round so basically sure. i'll i'll ask you a question and you'll have uh, less than 60 seconds to answer. Moses, are you ready? Go for it. All right. What's one thing you wish your phone could do? One thing I wish my phone could do? Yep. Get my uh, oldest children to pick up when I call them. <laughs> okay. All right. Good one. What's the most misunderstood thing about you or adaptive? Oh, that's a good one. I think... And this is partially, I guess, because of the following that I built on Twitter. I think very often I get questions from people asking me like what they should do, whether they think some retail deal in Alabama makes sense or like what they should do about leasing their office building in Des Moines or whatever. And like what has allowed us to be successful is a very narrow circle of competence. Like we know we are real experts in sub-institutional scale Los Angeles apartment buildings. And I have some thoughts on other asset classes or whatever, but I am no, by no means an expert in them and uh, no one should expect me to be one. All right. Next question. What do you believe that others might disbelieve? I think, as I said before, I mean, I think the standard practice in real estate private equity is basically to buy mediocre assets in mediocre markets, uh, lipstick them and, and use as much debt as possible and try to flip them quickly. And that's just, um, that's worked out really well for a lot of people. I don't want to poo-poo it. It's, you know, it's, it's a model that's worked really well, but um, uh, that's for various reasons, not what we're going to do. And so we're just going to keep plugging along, buying good stuff and really high quality, high barrier to entry markets, doing really high quality renovations, keeping the leverage reasonable and owning them permanently. The last one is, what have you changed your mind about lately? And this is a funny time to be talking about it because uh, cryptocurrencies are like down uh, enormously uh, today. <laughs> but for a very long time, I have sort of like just literally ignored everything about crypto. Like I just have found the whole thing to be like, you know, a gigantic scam or, or like maybe if not a scam, then like not, you know, speculative and just like. I have kind of a value investor type framework and everyone can make fun of me about that, but uh, that's just how I think about the world. And I just couldn't understand and didn't care to understand crypto. But I have recently become convinced of its value in certain circumstances, primarily in developing countries where property rights are, are, are not protected and where currencies are prone to like massive devaluations. Again, like today's declines in, in, in Bitcoin and everything, you know, obviously shake that faith a little bit. But I just I've read enough about people in desperate situations uh, needing to run away from where they live and go somewhere else to try to save their families. 
and how hard it is for people in those situations to bring with them any of the wealth that they have accumulated. And the solutions that people have come up with and, you know, are, I don't know, converting wealth to diamonds and hiding them in their underpants or, or you know, or whatever, or burying jewelry and hoping to come back and get it some other time or what, you know. And so I, I've become convinced recently that, that, that crypto does uh, have some significant benefits for people in those circumstances. And so I'm, while it's not ever going to be a big part of my life, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of glad it exists. I agree with those use cases that you've, uh, you've identified for sure. So where can people find out more about you on the interwebs? Yeah. So I think the best place to find me is probably on Twitter. It's just at Moses Kagan. I'm also, I wrote a blog for like six years or something uh, every day. I, don't, I haven't written on it in a long time, but I do have a mailing list on there. So if you go to kagansblog.com, which is the first thing that you'll see when you search for me, you can read all about the history of us getting into the business. I think I started writing it in like 2011 or something like that. So it's, oh, it's wow. uh, it really chart, charts our progress as a, as a, as a company. So uh, I, I suggest people check that out. All right. We'll put that in the show notes. All right. Well, that's it for another episode. Moses, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Until next time, keep swimming. Thanks, Mitch. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rensink.com forward slash podcast to access show notes, key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in the show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening.